Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is Medical Director Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And thankfully, this last week, 10 days, we are actually closing in on some true, real, potentially positive COVID-19 news. It's kind of a first, right? This has all been negative city for the last nine months. And what we're getting hopefully close to is... FDA approval of a COVID-19 vaccine or vaccines even. And today on the podcast, we're going to break down some vaccine basics, uh, talk about some of the most common vaccine talking points, both pro and con, and really hit on some of the discussions we've had both region-wide and statewide anticipating this vaccine being implemented and actually given to the public and to us as first responders and what the hangups are going to be for us being involved as, as an EMS service. Right. Cause ultimately EMS is going to be part of the solution on the how uh, to get, you know, 350 million people in this country vaccinated, starting with the, the most important you out there, the listeners, the first responders that are taking care of patients in the field and in the hospital. And then the trickle down to the, to the next tier, next tranche, if you will, of uh, important workers that are important to the infrastructure of this country. So leads us right in. Who are the main players in the vaccine race right so, now? There's four U.S. vaccines in stage three trials. Tell us about those. Right, four of them in in trials or in in stage three. And we're going to get to what all these stages mean. You know, the Pfizer, which is a modified uh, mRNA, which is messenger RNA. Uh, Data's come out this week on it. It's about 90% effective seven days after the second dose. And this is non-peer-reviewed publications. These are press releases. And we, Casey and I talked about this morning, proofs in the pudding. We're going to read through the, the data and the papers when they come out. But that's what's touted is 90% effectiveness at preventing the disease. The AstraZeneca, which is a non-replicating viral vector. So essentially, they take a virus that won't hurt you. Uh, they inject the vir- the the code, genetic code, into that virus to have it crank out this spike protein. The spike protein you hear over and over is the target that we want your body to create antibodies against. The third is the Moderna, which came out with some very positive uh, press releases today, at least today or yesterday, another mRNA uh, vector uh, that has a purportedly like 95 to 98% efficacy. Uh, And then the Johnson & Johnson, uh, which is a non-replicating viral vector. So again, another virus that's engineered to crank out these proteins that's just a benign virus that won't hurt you. So just to to wrap up there, those are the four in stage three trials. There are multiple others that are in stage two. And in all reality, we need multiple winners of this race because we've got to vaccinate the whole world. Right. We so, were just saying this morning, Pfizer is the first horse out of the gate, but certainly not the last. So how do these vaccines work? Uh, Dr. Dixon just introduced a little bit of nomenclature, uh, some terminology that me, myself, as a non-vaccine expert, never saw myself thinking or trying to learn as much about vaccine 
you know, immunology and vac- vaccine physiology as, as we have here over the past few weeks, thinking about how we're going to be involved in this and how we're going to answer your questions as the medics who are going to be vac- vaccinated as well, how I'm going to, you know, break down whether or not I'm going to take this vaccine as a healthcare provider too. So how do these things work? Well, there are multiple ways to get the job done. And in the end, the job is our immune system needs to be primed to recognize the infectious entity, whether that's, you know, COVID or measles or whatever we're vaccinating for ahead of time. So that when we do come into contact with COVID-19 as a healthcare worker, that our immune system says, Oh, I've seen that before. I'm going to go kill it. That's the goal, right? So how do all these other vaccines that we take, how, how do these things work? You know, what are the, the, the physiologic basis of these? The simplest is an inactivated vaccine. And that is a dead virus is injected, primes the immune system. The immune system then recognizes polio, hep A, rabies, all examples of inactivated vaccines. Subunit vaccine are not inactivated vaccines. They're pieces of the virus that are injected to induce immunity. Um, human papillomavirus vaccine or HPV, shingles vaccine also is another example of a subunit vaccine. There are weakened live viral vaccines. So basically the virus is engineered to be too weak for disease, but strong enough to elicit immunity. And the MMR vaccine or mumps, measles, rubella vaccine is an example of a weakened live viral vaccine. Uh, Replicating viral vector vaccines are when a vector virus, in other words, it's just a carrier virus that carries the encoded gene that you want your body to produce to elicit the immune response. So just a random uh, non-infectious negligible virus is, is injected into the body. That body has an encoded gene for, in this case with COVID-19, that spike protein is the key. Um, then the body sees that virus, it, the spike protein is encoded, it's produced, and then the antibody response is elicited. And again, your body's just trying, is, is being primed by the vaccine to recognize. There is only one replicating viral uh, vector vaccine that exists, that's the Ebola virus. A non-replicating viral vector vaccine, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson being two examples there, are when a virus is used to contain that encoded gene, the spike protein, but the virus doesn't replicate, but the protein is encoded in the virus. And that is, again, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are in that category. Then we have the last two, which are DNA and mRNA vaccines. And those are when the specific spike protein DNA or messenger RNA are inserted into piece of DNA in a, the DNA vaccine case. And that's a, what's called a plasma DNA. That's injected. The body then uses that DNA to produce the spike protein. Antibody response happens. Then we recognize COVID-19 when it happens. So again, all that stuff, super complicated, way outside of my wheelhouse. But the end goal is to get somehow get the body to recognize the spike protein when it comes so that our immune system is ready to go. I'm just super, super glad that Dr. Patrick took that section to explain that. Uh, wait a minute. Replicating viral vector vaccine. That's just too. Definitely a tongue twister. That's a tongue twister. That's a if, tongue you, twister. if you forget all of that, just know that we're trying to get our body to recognize the spike protein. That's the key. 
because once once we can say, hey, immune system, this thing's foreign, and then the patient coughs on you with their COVID pneumonia, your body will be ready for it. It's it's very complex, but in the the end goal is fairly simple and easy to understand. So what steps have to happen for us to get from this nebulous, okay, we've got to get this spike protein into our body, or we've got to get our body to produce this spike protein so we can see it as foreign. How do we go from this, you know, this is logically, it makes total sense, but what happens when the rubber meets the road? How do we get to immunizing 350 million people? Well, there's steps, Casey, that, that we have to take, and I think it's all nomenclature, right? We hear on the lay press these stage one trials or phase one trials, phase two trials. What are these nebulous things? They're essentially just big, bigger, and biggest, right? They are small groups. Phase one is just initial small group studies to look at, is this vaccine safe? Are we seeing lots of bad side effects? And they usually have you know, a small amount, less than 100 people in them. Phase two, you would increase the patient numbers uh, to look at specific what dose. So you look at several different dose ranges for a particular medication. Again, you're monitoring for safety. So really the first two phases of the, the vaccine in, in developing any vaccine are just deciding, is this going to be safe? We're going to license it to put into another human being. Is it going to be safe? And if it is safe, what is the right dose? What's the safest dose to match that safety with efficacy? The third phase or phase three trials that we're currently in now and they're finishing up with the Pfizer and the Moderna have thousands or tens of thousands of patients. And these are the gold standard study. So these are randomized, uh, controlled and blinded. And what that means is, is that you take a, a huge population and these populations, they looked at different people. So they wanted to, to subgroup, you know, at risk people. So they took people of different ages and races and ethnicities uh, to include them in, in these big tens of thousands of patient study groups. Uh, and then they randomize them. And so that means that neither the investigator nor the patient knows whether they got the actual vaccine or they got the placebo, which just is an inert medication that's administered just like a vaccine. So the patient doesn't know. Then we follow those patients and we decide, you know, did anybody get COVID? And the proof's in the pudding. And as we said earlier in the press releases, they don't really tell you all the details of how did they identify a COVID patient? Was it anybody that tested positive? Did they test them all the time? We don't know that now because that's going to be in the, in the peer-reviewed section of, of all this research that comes out. So those are the phases. Phase one, two, and three, big bigger, biggest trials, essentially to work from how many, what's the best dose and is it safe? And then really phase three is to work on large scale efficacy. So who's watching out for us, right? That's the next question that, that anyone's obviously going to ask is how come, you know, right. How's this, how's this regulated? So I, I, I explained the, the phases of it, but at the end of the day, who gets the, that research that's done by usually a company that is a for-profit company and independently, is there some independent agency that says, hey, wait a minute, this is really uh, well-done research and it looks like it was done correctly and all the numbers are right? Who, who does that? Well, before I get to the answer to those two questions, the other skeptic question that's going to be asked in this, in this group of discussion in this in this discussion line is how have we done it so quickly right if you look back at vaccine development over time 
you know, vaccines take, you know, five, 10 years plus uh, to, to be developed from phase one to phase three. And the reason being really is that there's never been the rush that there's been. Phase one took place. Phase two took place. Phase three is taking place now. It's not like we've skipped steps in this process. We've just went from a linear, slow, you know, non-urgent research process to, hey, this is a pandemic. Hundreds, thousands of people are dying. We've got to do phase one, phase two, and phase three at the same time. So just like we know in emergency care, if you work in linear processes, terribly inefficient. If you work in parallel, much more efficient. And that's what we've done. We've, we've not skipped steps at this point. We've just moved more quickly than normal. So who's watching out for us? First off, this has to be approved by the FDA. This is a emergency use authorization or EUA. You'll hear that tossed around. Um, and then the FDA doesn't specifically recommend vaccines. So they'll, they may approve Pfizer. They may approve AstraZeneca. I hope they approve all of these. I hope they all work. There are other vaccines, shingles, for example, that has, has multiple vaccines that are available. There's a second group called the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, or ACIP, that reviews the data and then makes specific vaccine recommendations. And who are those people? Those are nonpartisan, non-industry scientists, academics who are unbiased, look at the data, look at the, you know, the stats and the methods and the confidence intervals and all of those things that most of us aren't really qualified to do. And then they say, okay, vaccine A is recommended over vaccine B. And in, in the shingles case, there were two FDA approved shingles vaccines and the advisory committee for immunization practices recommended one over the other. In COVID-19 sake, we're going to need multiple. And there may be one vaccine that's better for one subgroup. You know, for instance, in, in elderly folks, oftentimes they, they do better with subunit vaccines, for example, shingles. So there may be a case where when the first subunit vaccine is actually approved, it may be preferred for folks older than 65, for example. It's, this is a, um, an endeavor, an undertaking that's, that's going to be enormous. So we need more than one option here. What are some of the logistical issues, Dr. Dixon, that we're going to see? We've been on several tabletop discussions and, and talked through and thought through how MCHD may be involved in the vaccination process here in our community. But what are some of the, the big picture things that we're going to run into problems with in dealing with these vaccines as they are now? Yeah, that's the how of how this is going to get done. And, and my suspect is, is that public health and EMS first responders will be involved in this process all around the world uh, because we have boots on the ground. We have expertise in managing disasters and logistics and things that can get these out uh, because there's some real challenges here uh, for getting these vaccines out, particularly uh, how they're stored and how they're transported. When you think about it, you get a big batch of vials, but you have to have other stuff to give it with, right? You have to have a syringe, you have to have an alcohol prep, um, you have to have a Band-Aid. Think of all those different things. You have kind of a shot kit, plus you have the vaccine. And in particular, the Pfizer and the Moderna are two, uh, two dose vaccines. So you have to give two doses at different intervals. So how are you going to... Uh, get those patients registered, and then how are you going to track them and bring them back at the right time interval so the vaccine works? 
the Moderna in particular, we'll, we'll start there on, on kind of like why they're so hard to, to move around and to transport in the logistical part is because the mRNA viruses, which is the Moderna and the Pfizer, are inherently unstable. They're a piece of genetic code that's wrapped in this lipid capsule, which is, you know, Casey had a good analogy today, which is, you know, you throw a piece of bacon, which is a lipid into a frying pan, and it, they're inherently unstable. And so these need to be frozen. The Pfizer needs to be stored at ultra cold, which is minus 70 degrees Celsius. And to give you kind of a, a comparator, a regular commercial freezer would be about, uh, you know, minus 10 ish, 10 to 18. Uh, I'm sorry, that would be a freezer. And then a refrigerator would be about zero degrees C or, you know, uh, two, two. Yeah. So uh, the Pfizer, it has to be stored at ultra cold temperatures. It has to be thawed. So it has to start at ultra cold in this crazy freezer that no one owns. And we had to read up about and someone else has, we had to figure out where to buy one. Then you can thaw it to freezer, regular commercial freezer temperature. Uh, for only five days, and then when you dilute it, then you, that's the the bit you use. You you have to dilute it down, and you can you you have to use it within six hours. You can look at the logistical challenges involved in that, in moving from super cold to cold you know cold freezer, and then you got to use it within six hours. The Moderna is a little bit better. It's stored at minus twenty degrees, so about a freezer, a regular commercial freezer. Then you can move it to a refrigerator and use it within seven days. Once you thaw it out of the last little bit of it being cold, it, you can use, use it within 12 hours. So a little bit looser um, guidelines around how these things are used. As we said earlier, uh, some of the most stable are these protein subunit vaccines. They're very stable. You just put them in the refrigerator. Uh, but most of those are still in phase two or early phase three trials. So we talked about the Moderna and the Pfizer specifically, Casey. Can you get into the weeds a little bit on the doses and how these things are going to work once we do get them distributed? So logistical problem number one is going to be keeping them at negative 70 or even negative 20. And even if you're using uh, potentially a regular freezer, it's gonna, it, it can't fluctuate, right? It can't drop to negative 10. Negative 10 may freeze your popsicles, but if your Moderna, Moderna mRNA vaccine drops to negative 10 that lipid capsule may break down so it's it's got to be a tightly controlled ultra cold temp for these for these uh, vaccines and secondly we've got to track right we're going to track when the patient comes in on day one and then when they come back on from the moderna vaccine day 29 or the pfizer vaccine day 21 so it's a, a that's the the space between vaccination number one and vaccination number two with these two vaccines and how we're going to track and ensure compliance it's going to be essential right that's going to be a difficult task it's going to have to be you know refined it's going to have to be uh, easy and streamlined otherwise it's going to be impossible and, and unwieldy to manage and why are we giving two doses we have to appropriately prime the immune system and with these vaccines that's that's what's required at this point so what's going to be the side effects? And these need to be known because we're going to have to communicate these to the patients so that they don't get vaccination number one and then have a sore arm, for example, and not come back for vaccination number two. And the big side effects at this point, sight soreness, 
fatigue and malaise, fever, viral syndrome. Those are the ones that we really expect with all vaccinations. Now, in the peer-reviewed data and the peer-reviewed manuscripts that come out on these vaccines, which they're hopefully going to be out soon, and that will definitely create waves in the you know medical press and in the lay press, this is going to be one of the major tables that everyone is going to go to, and that is what were the adverse events, you know, at what time points did they happen, what patient subsets did they occur in, and what do they look like? Um, you know, for example, any if anybody out there, ha- hopefully all the listeners out there have had their flu shot this uh, fall season going into winter. We don't want flu COVID or whatever whatever you call the mix of the two. Your mortality rate goes way up when you mix the two. Um, if you've ever signed the flu paper that you sign every year you get the flu vaccine there's a line on there about Guillain-Barre syndrome that's probably the rarest but most feared complication of the flu vaccine so what is it going to be for the Moderna COVID vaccine or for the Pfizer COVID vaccine it remains to be seen but you can bet you're going to have some sight soreness you're going to have some fatigue malaise fever viral syndrome why is that because your immune system is being activated right and those are symptoms that you can expect anytime you you know, humans alter the immune system, right? But that being said, the big uh, adverse effects, these are very, very closely um, uh, controlled trials. And they had a data safety panel. And as everybody can, some of the listeners may remember, they did stop some of these trials uh, for safety reasons when they had an event. So event happens, they're like, oh, something happened to a patient. Uh, This is pretty serious something. Let's stop the trial and investigate this and see, is this bad event associated? Do we think it's associated with the vaccine? Uh, so we, there, there was one of those in, in one of the groups. Johnson, uh, Johnson and that, Johnson. That was a Johnson Johnson that's still in phase three. And that one was restarted, uh, but there's not lots of details about that, what that was. So in these, as far as we know, there's no serious adverse events, just these mild ones but we're waiting on the peer-reviewed paper to actually look at the data. And with that, anytime there's an adverse event during the study, that goes to the data safety review board of that study itself. After that virus, or excuse me, after that vaccine is approved, then we have what's called the vaccine adverse event reporting system that exists for every vaccine, and anyone can access that, even if you have a, a, a red deltoid area with your tetanus shot, you can report that to the vaccine adverse event reporting system and all that is open so you can see all side effects from from all vaccines there and that will be important with the covid vaccine for sure but when you think about what happens in these trials is these people are chosen at random you know 40 50,000 people in tracked uh, the johnson and johnson trial is a two-year trial and the trial study members i know this because i've looked into multiple of these as a study participant, you have multiple visits that you have to go have blood draws and physical exam and you're completing surveys. So they don't just give you the vaccine and let you walk off into the world. There's multiple visits and that tell are involved. You, tell you to call back if you have COVID. Right. They're, and if something bad goes wrong, they're going to bring you in and run a battery of tests and look at inflammatory markers and blood work and all those things to see, did this person just have a random event because again you take 40,000 people and you observe them for two years they're going to have random medical happenings that aren't related to the vaccine if I took 50,000 people and watched them for two years and didn't give them anything I would see episodes of transverse myelitis or Guillain-Barre or 
you name the medical rare complication in that large of a group of patients over that length of time, it's the scientist's job and the data safety review board's job to look at that specific event and say vaccine related or not. Yeah, and I think it's important. I know we spent a little time on this, but I think it's important because we will go back to the one of the first things we talked about is there's a fair amount of skepticism in this country about how quickly this was developed. And I think Dr. Patrick made some really good points is that the same process that any vaccine, any vaccine had to go through, these vaccines went through to get this emergency use authorization, ultimately FDA approval. It's just that we've never been in times like this in this during this pandemic and all the just enormous amounts of resources were being poured into this to start recruiting patients earlier to run these trials in parallel instead of in linear so i believe this is a a safe process the proofs in the pudding when the peer-reviewed comes out i think that people will review that in the advisory panel and i mean a forty thousand. 30,000 in Pfizer and 40,000 for Moderna. It's a pretty robust study. I can't imagine the the work that that goes into that. So we've got a vaccine, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, they all come out. We're going back to concerts. We're going back to the world, right? Everything's going to go back to normal once we have a vaccine. I've got some True stock. Or false? I've got some stock I want to sell, Doctor mm-hmm. Patrick. No, I mean I, that's what we want, isn't it? I mean, when people talk about a vaccine, there, it conjures up this idea that we're gonna, you know, um, we're gonna tap our heels together and go back to last January, and I'll get on an airplane and go to Tahiti. But in fact, that's really not going to be the case. We tell our medics here, and I think that's the the rational thing to do is viral filters are with us forever and ever. From here on out, we didn't know what we didn't know. They're here forever. Masks are here in respiratory calls for sure, uh, likely forever and ever, right? We need to buff up our PPE. It's kept us very, very safe. I think the proof's in the pudding. We haven't had uh, workplace infections. So I think that some things will change, uh, but they're not going to, it's not going to turn on a dime. This isn't going to be like you can throw away all the precautions we've taken with social distancing and hand washing and mask use. Um, and expect uh, the vaccines to be the, the fix-all. Uh, just a couple of numbers, you know, at 75% effectiveness, and these are touted to be a little bit higher, it's estimated two-thirds of the population need to be vaccinated to drop the viral replication factor less than a factor of one. Remember, it's this kind of R number, which is the, the how the virus is replicating. Anything over one uh, and it, it's kind of exponential. And when it gets to two, things really get out of control. So I won't go into that number a whole, whole bunch, but I'll say it takes a whole bunch of the population to be vaccinated to drop it down, drop the replication of this virus down to some place where we can easily manage it. We will never prevent every case of COVID pneumonia, of COVID disease. What the vaccine is here for is to try to tamp it down enough to where the medical resources we have in this country can can adequately handle it. Masking, social distancing will always be paramount. I think in the in the near future, we tell our medics this is just the new this is the new normal. We will wear masks to stay safe. Um, a podcast by Dr. Dr. Paul Offit from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, you know, he's the guy who helped develop the rotavirus vaccine uh, was asked, he said, you know, if I had to pick between a vaccine and a mask, I'd take the mask. And, you know, right now I'd agree. 
Uh, I think that we've increased our mask use at MCHD. Our infections, uh, our exposures, our high-risk exposures have gone down to essentially zero at work. Um, it's really been a game changer for our service to keep our staffing up, keep our, our providers safe. Um, and initial vaccines, you have to remember, there are 350 million plus people in this country, and it's going to take a lot of vaccine to get all these people vaccinated. This is not just going to happen. It was estimated on uh, some calls we were on the last couple of weeks that of the initial batch of probably the Pfizer vaccine that's coming out in uh, hopefully in December sometime before the new year, uh, that Texas, the whole state, is going to get 50,000 doses. That's 50,000 doses uh, for the entire state. So uh, this is going to take a while, and uh, there's that's why we need multiple vaccines. Uh, we need multiple ways to distribute uh, to get to everybody and get to that two-thirds number. So I think that we've really gone uh, over a lot of kind of generalities and, and then narrowed down into the specifics of the the, the four main players, the Pfizer, the Moderna, the Johnson, Johnson, the AstraZeneca, which are the four main in phase three trials or, or getting ready to be released. So, Dr. Patrick, kind of wrap it all up for us. What are your major take-home points from, from what you learned from your research back into this vaccine? Well, I'd, I'd encourage anybody that's interested, you know, in hearing from a true expert. I linked the uh, podcast with Dr. Offit in the show notes. And just to go back to his statement, you know, he said if he had to pick between a vaccine and a mask, he'd take a mask. But obviously there's more to that conversation. And ideal situation is mask, hand washing, vaccination, social distancing, you know, in order to drive the presence of this virus down enough to where when transmission stops and when the virus cannot transmit, it needs a live host. It's going to go away. Right. That's the goal. And you know, one of the points he made in the podcast was that skepticism is okay, right? That's what we should be as, you know, pseudoscientists. I don't know that I'm an actual scientist, but I think I'm a pseudoscientist. And I, we want you all to be skeptical of, of data. Um, but that said, when you see the data, it's important to trust the data and to trust our non-biased, non-partisan you know, folks like the advisory committee for immunization practices, they're, they're there for a reason. And we have a 50 year track record in this country, 60 year, 70 year track record of eradicating things like polio, things like measles with vaccines. We've done this with other diseases. We can do it with COVID-19. So skepticism is okay, but also look at our history and, and trust in that history as well. Uh, you know, and every choice includes risk, right? I think, to say that I'm not going to take the vaccine because I'm scared of the vaccine, that's not a no-risk proposition, right? You've also assumed risk now that you may be less safe than folks who are vaccinated. You may be more likely to spread to other people, your elderly grandparents, your immunosuppressed father and mother, your immunosuppressed children, bone marrow transplants, whatever it may be. So there's, there's no risk-free decision here. There, it's just a matter of somehow placing that on a scale and deciding what, what we're comfortable with as a society, really. We still need the hard data on all these phase three trials. All this is a bit premature. You know, we're recording this on Wednesday, November 18th. So who knows what will be out and will be public by the time this is released to the listeners. But we're all looking at those peer-reviewed documents 
as the sort of the, the holy grail. That's where we're really going to be able to see how they collected the data and how they, how they processed it. And dosage and scheduling, storage, it's going to require tons of planning and communication. And we're going to be vi a vital part of that in EMS, really, whether we want to or not. I, to, to get this out to 350 million people, there's no way that we're not going to have to be involved from an administration standpoint. And we're going to be on the front lines of the first folks that are, that are administered this drug as well so that we can keep ourselves even more safe, keep our trucks in service, you know, keep our trucks on the street and not be in, in, you know, staffing disasters, which if you're listening out there, you're an MCHD, you know that we've had staffing issues over the last, you know, several weeks. If you're listening from other EMS services, I can only imagine that you've been in the same boat. So as always, Thanks for listening. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, I think this was a great review. I will tell you, I'm super excited about the the new vaccines and the advances that we've made in them. I think it's just as Dr. Patrick said, it's just one more arrow in the quiver to to fight this pandemic. As always, if you like to send us questions or comments, please don't send us anti-vax uh, stuff after this one. If you yeah, we were trying to be very apolitical. Apolitical here, but podcast at mchd-tx.org is how you can reach us. As always, wherever you listen to podcasts, leave a like, leave a review. That helps us out. We'll talk to everybody again soon. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.